0: Welcome back to 007x7, 007 7, the podcast where we're investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel.
1: And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're looking at minutes 77 through 84, which begin with Bond turning away from the guards only to receive a warning shot at his feet and ends with a mysterious figure standing over unconscious Bond in bed. In between, Bond and Honey get into a fight with the guards, are taken to Dr. No's compound where they are decontaminated, then escorted by very polite attendants to a hotel-like suite and served drugged coffee. And today we're joined by our good friend of the show, Todd Norris, cinematographer, filmmaker,
2: uh, movie geek. The l- the list is endless. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on here. It's good to, uh, good to be back. I think the last time we were all together, we were talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, so now we're... Uh, moving into James Bond land, and I'm happy.
1: Yeah, I think that, that um, that's available still on our Patreon if you haven't heard uh, the three of us go after Close Encounters, which is Todd's favorite movie. So he came in loaded for bear. He's mm-hmm. got lots <laughs> of amazing stuff on that commentary, so I highly recommend it. Um, do you? What's your relationship with James Bond? Do you remember your first James Bond f- film? Or
2: Yeah, I do remember my first James Bond movie, and actually I'm going to split it into two. Uh, the first first run James Bond movie I saw was The Spy Who Loved Me. And uh, for those of us who live in Kansas City, I saw it at the Midland Theater in the middle sized theater across the way from the big theater, the one that was across from the concession stand. So, uh, you know, I guess it wasn't cool enough to be in the big theater. I I wonder what was in the big theater at that time. But um, so that one was fine. You know, and I think for somebody my age, it was a big hit. Um, even though it was deviating from, you know, it didn't have the John Barry score and it had corny stuff like Jaws, even though that was cool, you know. But um, so my first experience with Bond was Roger Moore, sort of the mid-level James Bond. But about a year or so later, um, I was living on the plaza in Kansas City, and it was walking distance from the old Bijou Theater. And this shows you the difference in time, you know, in terms of what c- you kids could get away with. But uh, my parents would give me money to like go see a movie <laughs> and I would walk to Westport to the Bijou by myself. And I saw Goldfinger uh, by myself. And Uh, It blew me away. Like it really did. And so that was the movie that started my love affair with James Bond was seeing Goldfinger at the Bijou and seeing, wow, this Sean Connery guy is way cooler than Roger Moore. (laughs) Uh, And this movie is just more interesting and more fun. Um, So, yeah, that's my story. It's a
1: good story because anytime Goldfinger blows people's minds, I understand that. You
2: know, I, I oh, yeah. I mean, way. just sitting there as a kid and him dropping that thing in the bathtub at the beginning and, and you know, shocking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like, oh. The, the release date for This Body I Love Me is August 3rd, 1977. So we might be able
2: to guess what was in the other theater.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Uh, I'm probably, thinking oh. Star Wars was still dominating what? the screen, I imagine.
2: But Star Wars was not at the Midland. Uh, really? Remember, It was at the Glenwood yeah. and the Antioch. Remember the Antioch? It was in two theaters all summer long, only.
0: The Antioch's where I saw it, but I didn't know mm-hmm. it was only at two theaters. I was sure that, well, I August 3rd, we'd... 77, then maybe close in, was Close Encounters in the big... Uh,
2: maybe. Yeah, that'd be a good... I don't know. Wow, I didn't <laughs>
0: realize that... I knew that Glenwood had Star Wars for at least the first month or two. But uh, the Antioch's where I saw it, I didn't know that was it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a big
2: deal games. that in the fall, they ended up releasing it to like the mall theaters, finally, after oh, okay. months of it being exclusive to two theaters. Wow. Well,
1: let's jump into these minutes. Um, we're, we're still in the Vonzi Swamp, which was these mud flats that were found by the location scouts that they thought would be perfect for this burned out place where the dragon lives. And apparently, it was really smelly and awful and mosquito-ridden. And a, and Sid Kane and Bob Simmons, when they went to scout it initially, sank into the mud, according to them, like up to their chests almost. So they had to do some engineering and build a a little road in the middle of all this swamp for that creature to, I'm being kind, <laughs> that creature to come uh, attack them. Uh, but uh, this, the death of Quarrel. I know, Todd. You you we talked about. When you've watched Dr. No just a couple of months ago, I think the first thing you said to me was – had to do with the death of Quarrel.
2: Yeah. um, So, just to start off, Dr. No is one of the Bond films that I've actually seen the least, um, which maybe is good for this podcast, you know, because it's fresh in my mind. I saw – and the only other time I ever saw it was on TV back when I was younger. Yeah, I think, did ABC run Bond movies, I guess? Yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah. yeah, so it must have been one of those. So seeing it in 4K on television just recently was a huge leap in quality. And um, also, since it wasn't very fresh in my memory, it was kind of like seeing it for the first time. And so, um, yeah, that moment where he, <laughs> he gets incinerated, right? Um, it just seemed so... In terms of the the, uh, the the movie, the pacing of the movie that this really horrifying death happened to a character that you had kind of gotten to know over the last few you know sequence or so, and then suddenly he's gone in a horrifying manner, and then the movie just moves on and and doesn't really seem to ask for your empathy at all. It's just sort of like, yeah, he's dead. Now we're moving on. And It was just really shocking to me. Like I was I was a little bit scarred in the fact that the movie just kept on going was, uh, that's why I, I think I texted you. I'm like, what the hell just happened? Well, and I had a
1: similar question when I saw Bond turn and walk away and then, you know, they shoot at his feet and stop him. And I thought, well, what, what is he doing? Like, why is he just turning and walking away from these guys? And then I looked in the book and it sort of explains it a little better. It said, Bond turned his back on the man and started walking away. He was going to see Coral's body. He had to say goodbye to it. There was the roar of a gun, a bullet kicked up sand close to his feet. Bond stopped and turned slowly round. Don't be nervous, he said. I'm going to take a look at, a man, at the man you've just murdered. I'll be back. The man lowered his gun, laughed harshly. Okay, enjoy yourself. Sorry we ain't got no wreath. Come back quick or we'll give the doll a toasting. two minutes. Bond walked on towards the smoking clump of bushes. He got there and looked down, his eyes and mouth winced. Yes, it had been just as he had visualized. Worse, he said softly, I'm sorry, Quarrel. He kicked into the ground and scooped up a handful of cool sand between his manacled hands and poured it over the remains of the eyes. Then he walked slowly back and stood beside the girl. So whether they filmed that, whether they took the time, I know that they had all sorts of weather problems and they were up against the guns shooting on these flats and they were obviously shooting day for night. So that has probably its own set of of, uh, problems or things to be concerned about. It, the moment just isn't there, and it's really weird.
2: Yeah, that's interesting to, to see that in the book at least that was acknowledged. And um, you would think that that moment – I don't know. They might have filmed that moment, but you're right. It could have just been a budgetary thing with the, the having to shoot day for night that they just glossed on past it.
0: I, mean, I would say if they shot it and cut it, then they really have gone too far with their undermining of Coral's character in my book. I mean, that's, Todd, you haven't been here for this conversation, but it feels as though they were building a character with Quarrel in the film, and suddenly they shifted gears with him, and I, I feel like they cut the legs out from under him. Like He suddenly becomes the butt of jokes. He suddenly becomes kind of uh, fearful of things, and now they kill him unceremoniously, as you're saying. Had they given him, uh, given I, I don't know. I don't even know if it would have fit at this point for Bond to go over and do that. I'd be like... Hey, you were just like given the you I don't know. I never get the feeling that Bond really cares about Coral. Of course in the books it's different. We're building yeah we built a character over multiple books in that case, so
1: I don't know. Peter Hunt says he accelerated the editing during this sequence because they had so little footage and so he figured he had to find a way to create momentum and make the mm. Yeah. make the tank more menacing, which was a dune buggy that they had imported from Florida, and they had 70 pounds to try to retrofit it. So not a lot of money to try to make it convincing and a flamethrower that never worked. Did you sense the escalation in, in
2: terms of, of pacing, Todd? Uh, it's difficult for me to say because uh, at the time I was just sort of paying attention to it as as an audience member, just as a film. And I think that moment was so shocking that the filmmaker side of my brain didn't kick in. So I can't, I, it's difficult for me to answer that question. But, um, although I'm sure you've been, if you're talking about how Quarrel's character has been treated in previous episodes of your podcast in earlier minutes of the movie, I'm sure the, the topic of race has come up perhaps. I mean, in terms of just this sort of dismissive way that, yeah, that he's seen and, and, and the, 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 him being the butt of jokes, and you know that there's racial stereotypes definitely seem to be in play.
1: Yeah, th- that's it's that's definitely a factor as well. But it is it is too bad that it robs him of that kind of humanity because the next things that these guys do is is uh, one guard grabs Honey and she manages to clock him pretty nicely, you know, <laughs> and then she gets clocked, and then Bond manages to hit the guy even with his manacled hands, only to be knocked out. Um, which is a moment that I think Todd, you said something about, didn't you? That that that, that oh, shot.
2: Yeah, there's you know there's this close up of the moment that he gets hit over the head by the guy with a, the shovel or the pick or whatever it is, and it's clearly like a studio insert shot because the lighting is just too nice and the framing is just too perfect, and it doesn't quite match with the day for night footage from before so and you just get used to that stuff when you watch old movies those like studio inserts that are that last a second that don't quite match up do you think the 4k made it easier to clock that shot oh probably yeah yeah for sure um yeah the 4k transfer in particular i don't know if you've mentioned this on previous episodes but just the clarity uh sometimes works against the realism of the movie. Uh, It's, uh, I don't know if you've mentioned before, but what I noticed on, not this set of minutes, but earlier when James Bond's driving and it's the rear screen projection process shots, that the 4K is so clear that you can actually see the texture on the screen behind him, which I had never been able to see before. Um, And so it's, (laughs) you know, watching it either on television or even just Blu-ray, which is 1080, I don't think you can really see the movie screen texture uh, of the rear screen projection but this time around I'm like what the he's and just in the studio and they've already done
1: a 8k scan of it apparently yeah. which hmm. I can't even imagine what I'm going you're going to see then I mean there might be a point where this is this is too much you know where the where the magic of the movie is going to get lost if you scrutinize well, it too carefully oh, sort yeah. of like those over scanned Star Trek episodes where you can see the tape on the floor and the makeup <laughs> on Spock's face you know
0: Aren't, they, aren't there a lot of people that say that even once you get to 8k you're almost beyond any kind of recognizable difference anyway that our eyes aren't necessarily equipped to see that much clarity on a screen that there's is the difference that much? I mean I wonder I haven't seen an AK, um, an 8K uh, projection or, or disk yet so we'll have to see. People were skeptical yeah. about 4K. Oh, people were skeptical about Blu-ray. I've had people tell me, I don't see the difference between Blu-ray and DVD. And I'm always <laughs> like, you need to get a doctor's appointment, sir. Because there is a clear <laughs> difference. I think glasses are in your future.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole technical road that, uh, you know, I think that would be boring to go down. But the short answer is, I think, you know, 4K, in my mind, for move for older movies, is, is probably the limit. And it may even be too much, but um, it's partly because, again, there might be that kind of detail in a 35 millimeter frame. If you look at that frame, you can scan it at higher and higher resolutions and you'll get more out of it. But the fact is when you saw it, th- projected theatrically. For one thing, it was a print, not off the original negative that is lossy in terms of resolution, but also the gate weave and everything actually lowers the resolution. So what we were used to seeing projected on the screen, uh, even if, you know in the first week of a pristine uh, presentation, there's limits to the resolution that you would see on a screen. So this idea that we're getting closer to the theatrical presentation of it. No, we've already moved past that and we're seeing detail now that was never seen in the theatrical projection. So, you know, 8K probably seems a little uh, like marketing BS. (laughs) that's not really going to present us with anything new.
0: Well, I do want to, um, Mitch already mentioned it, but I do want to give it up for honey here. I'm really glad to see her stick it up for herself again. I sticking up like, for James
1: Bond and sticking up for James Bond <laughs> or sticking up.
0: Just, I don't know, having some guts, having some gumption here. It really, again, though, c- c- harkens back to our hands to the mouth shock of earlier. It just doesn't work. <laughs> and this makes it work even less. Every time she does something assertive or shows us that she's able to take care of herself, it becomes less and less, uh, understandable to me why she would be so shocked by Bond killing that guard earlier. Um, not to take not to punch backwards in time to another minute that I already took took umbrage with once, but uh I'm saying this is positive, this is good, I like honey, this honey much better than that honey,
1: so Todd, do you want to talk about this day for night that we're looking at just for a second?
2: yeah, uh, so the first scene in our minutes here uh are supposed to be taking place at night, but it's pretty clear that they shot this, uh, in the daytime, um, looking at it, most likely they shot it actually late in the day when maybe the, or it was, it was possibly it was overcast, but, um, but the technique of day for night is, uh, well, it was much more prevalent in older movies than it is today. But the idea is of course that you, um, shoot a night scene actually in the daytime and you use, a filter over the lens, a neutral density slash blue filter, that cuts the exposure in, and creates a sense of contrast in such a way that it looks like night. Now, there's there can be very bad day for night. You know, it's a it's a technique that is a, requires a little bit of imagination on the audience's part in the first place. I don't think anybody's really ever convinced. But if it's not done right, it can look really terrible. Um, This scene uh, looks like that there might be one actual movie light that is creating something uh, that might be, you know, moonlight or whatever. So it's not 100% day for night, but that's the idea.
1: It may have been to their advantage that the weather was so lousy once they got to this stuff because it was overcast and, and there's a weird wind that you can see rippling across some of the water ponds. And... That might have actually helped even it out a little bit, and they might have had to even add some light, as you said. Yeah,
2: and what it looks like they're doing, too, on a lot of these shots is that there might be a graduated filter so that the top of the screen is actually a little bit darker than the bottom so that it implies the sense of the sky being darker. Um, It looks a little fake, um, but, you know, it it does the job. It's funny, the only thing, the only movie that pops into my head that's a, fairly current movie that used day for night was, um, Mad Max Fury Road, that whole sequence. Now, granted, they were using a ton of, uh, post-production color grading to get that day for night, but basically they shot that whole sequence in Fury Road, uh, where they're in that kind of wasteland (laughs) or or where that one guy, the the old guy that gets his, his eyes shot out or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. so there, that's sort of a variation on day for night.
1: It reminded me of that scene in Apocalypse Now where they find the tiger and there, and that's day for night for sure.
2: It's yeah, got,
1: it this weird blue tint to it, but I, I don't think they shot that at night.
2: I, no, I'm shocked. Yeah,
1: and it, y- it makes it surreal. The,
2: the technique on the Apocalypse Now shot where the tiger attacks is to shoot. Um, I think they shot without an eighty-five filter, like they used. I could be getting this wrong, but I think they used tungsten balanced film. And they didn't put the uh, filter on that for daylight. So, of course, all the sunlight shifts very, very blue and gives it a a twilight slash night sense.
1: I did find the one uh, shot coming up that was day to night of the tank coming along the side of the um, bauxite mine to be a really convincing day for night shot. I thought that was a really beautiful shot. And there was that one light, the uh, practical light that was seemed to be brighter than everything. And it sort of sold the the gimmick of it being day for night.
2: Yeah. You know, it sold it so well that I guess I'm just looking at it now and realizing that you're, that you're probably right that it is a day for night shot. It didn't occur to me. It's perfect. Um, that same shot, if, if it's the one that I think you're talking about where there's these guys with guns. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that reminded foreground. me very much of like, I think, you know, Steven Spielberg grew up in this sort of era of movies, and that shot looks like something out of uh, the third act of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, with the, the Nazis at the sub submarine yeah. camp on the island. There's just something about the framing of those shots that Spielberg has ripped off for a lot of his movies when there's, you know, soldiers involved.
0: I was going to say, on the subject of day for night, I, I just want to say from my personal experience... Uh, Until somebody told me that that was a thing I'd ever thought about it once in my life. In my mind, it was just always really late at night, aka sunrise, like we were about to, day was about to break. And it never was a problem to me because I thought that what a perfectly appropriate time for any of this to be happening. And, And we all understand movie time. How often is it? daytime and then nighttime and it doesn't make any sense like how many hours just passed when they walked from one place to another i don't know doesn't matter because it's movie time so until somebody actually explained day for night to me i just assumed it was almost morning in every movie <laughs> you know and i think the quality i think that's probably the choice that miller made with fury road um was probably a nostalgic choice i think that some people like sometimes i kind of like to see old techniques used yeah. in this way and yeah. um in the in the case then in the particular from a practical point of view uh, the case of the of the vehicle coming up that driveway and entering the fort I think it is morning I think I think it is morning now I think once they get to the base I mean we're going to see later in the minutes they're talking about breakfast and so on I think that now it really you're is, right that's part true. of the convincing nature of it has to do with the fact well yeah it's daybreak now but it's it's a great shot not to not to take away from what you're saying about that
2: yeah you know to put day for night to bed, I think, you know, it uh, began in black and white cinematography. And I think you can sell that illusion much more in black and white than you can in color. And when you think of color day for night, that started to really happen more in the sixties as more and more films became color. And there's a different kind of nostalgia I get when I think of sixties day for night, kind of like this is where it's not quite as convincing and, you know, movie lighting in the 60s in general was a little artificial. It was in that kind of nether zone when cinematography where they were worried about movies being able to translate well translate well when they go to television or to the drive-ins. So the artistry of cinematography seemed to kind of wane in the 60s and the day for night cinematography kind of got a little lazy in a lot of 60s movies too. And then it went away in the 70s pretty much where when film stocks got more light sensitive and I think just Um, You know, the cinematographers from the the new film schools just started to do to light night in a different way.
1: It gives the whole movie this fantasy edge, I think, Uh, and that may be partially nostalgia and it may be partially having to do with the content. But I think that, Todd, you're here for what I think is an auspicious moment in the movie, as as important as Ursula Andress coming out of the water was, uh, and as important as James Bond walking into the gun barrel uh, shot at the beginning. Um, this is this moment where the movie really becomes a James Bond film. And one of the things that, because of that fantasy element, there's also this myth element that's, that's at work. And I, I, would, I just wanted to mention this book that came out in 1967 uh, that was called um, The Devil with James Bond. And it was written by a woman named Ann Boyd. And she, along with Kingsley Amos, who wrote the James Bond dossier in 1965, are kind of the first two pieces of you know serious Bond scholarship. I just want to read something from the uh, preface of this book. Um, it's somewhat ironic to admit that this book is the result of having gone to see the movie Goldfinger last year, as a break between semesters in my work as a graduate student at Drew University. What had begun as an evening's relaxation to celebrate having completed two seminar reports soon resulted in months of freelance research, all because my initial reaction to the movie was that James Bond was like a modern version of a knight. Since I was anxious to compare the contemporary adventures of Secret Agent 007 with the various aspects of medieval knighthood, I began buying and rereading the Fleming books in chronological order. And so she puts forth this whole book about reading these Bond films as tales of knights and damsels, and in this particular case, dragons. Uh, And so as much as we've been trashing this poor dragon buggy, I would like to submit that (laughs) if we look at this mythologically— if we look at it in terms of this metaphor of the damsel and the medieval knight, and now we're moving into the fantastic castle of the you know the evil baron or the evil doctor, um, it all kind of makes sense. And this is where the movie, foreshadowed by that wonderful set with Professor Dent and the spider, uh, this is where the movie just kicks into gear of the fantastical world of James Bond. And this is, I think, probably what most people expect from James Bond, this kind of slightly fantasy, slightly science fiction, slightly futuristic wonderment (laughs) that comes over you, largely aided by Ken Adams production design. But um, so I think this is when the movie turns into something really special.
0: Well, I want to say two things about that. Um, One is it hadn't occurred to me that we were trashing the dragon itself because maybe we haven't talked about it as its own, like as a vehicle. We've never once talked about. It. We've just kind of no, talked we're about the ridiculous. The
1: idea. Right.
0: We're talking about the ridiculousness of believing it's a physical dragon. We're not trashing right. the thing, and that's where my problem really lies. Everything you're saying and and that's said in that book makes sense if, if in regards to this dragon. It doesn't have to be... Nobody has to say it's a real dragon, though, for that to work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, secondly, my biggest note for today's episode is exactly that, Mitch. This is the part. I think, you know, I imagine we're recording these in advance and we haven't had all the episodes come out as we're recording, and we haven't had any sort of negative comment yet, but I imagine some people are thinking that I don't like this movie. (laughs) I think I've been very negative now, at the beginning I was okay, and then I think the middle part of this movie bothers me a little bit. And sorry, it's never been one of my favorites. It's one of my it's my second to least favorite Sean Connery movie, um, Bond movie. But at this point, I love the movie. From this point on, this is top top-notch Bond to me. And it's funny that, that it's because I think that that you're right, Mitch. I, this is what I'm looking for. I have expectations from James Bond. And this starts to meet them where before it does it, before it feels like some filmmakers who didn't quite know what they were doing yet meandering around trying to figure it out. Where here. As soon as they enter this layer, I'm like, I know where I'm at and you guys seem to know what you're doing. Not everything's perfect about it, but I'm with you, Mitch. I was just basically saying I concur. This is the point where I think James Bond is really born.
1: And what's so interesting is that in the book, we have a whole little sequence where they are riding inside of the dragon to to, to be deposited at Dr. No's place. Not in the movie. We get that one transitional shot uh, that we just described outside the bauxite mine with the dragon driving by the guards and everything. And then we are now back on Pinewood uh, stage and we this, this, this copper door opens and Ken Adams said that one of his main uh, visual uh, motifs was going to be copper surfaces. And then he said also he was going to use perspex glass, you know, that you could with various le- layer, levels of of um, transparency, and then uh, lots of, um, you know, rock and marble. And, and th- those were his kind of visual materials that he was going to use. And then, of course, bringing in a really modern set of de- uh, designs in, in, in these sets, he said that he didn't feel a need to clutter these sets, that you can make interesting modernistic sets without having to clutter everything. And certainly, if you look at the design of this decontamination room, it's a pretty simple set you know you've got you've got two freestanding units uh, and then a conveyor system. Uh, but as they walk into this place, we've got a really nice master shot that moves us through that space elegantly and in fact finds a resting spot with another one of those guards. Uh, forming the foreground frame right in that blue outfit. Yeah. Uh, And it's it's
2: another thing that Steven Spielberg ripped off, you know, where you've got a guard in the foreground on the right side of the frame to redirect, you know, if your eyes want to drift off to the side of the frame, you're met with this intimidating thing in the foreground. Um, So not only is it compositional balance, but it's also reinforcing the idea of being trapped. Um, But this sequence is definitely what made me want to pick these minutes to talk to you guys about because um you know this is the kind of stuff I like to shoot and this is the stuff that resonates with me these cool modern architecture big sets with tracking shots that reveal technology and and the bad guys and so this is probably a good time to bring up cinematographer Ted Moore which is probably one of the things that you wanted me to talk about and um Yeah, I didn't know a whole lot about this guy before uh, watching this, but Ted Moore uh, shot this and he shot uh, several other James Bond movies, uh, including From Russia with Love and Thunderball. Um, I'm forgetting which ones. I think the last one that he did on his own was Live and Let Die, and he did a little bit of Man with Golden Gun, but he got ill and and, uh, Oswald Morris took over um but he's he was born in South Africa and um one of his distinctions is that he won the Oscar for Man for All Seasons and so he was the first South African ever to win an Oscar um so that's one of his you know one of his unique things about him but for me personally what i found interesting when i was looking at his imdb list of movies that he shot was that he also shot the golden voyage of sinbad and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. So those were two of the films that I saw as a kid that really made me fall in love with movies. And there's a shot of him that I saw on the internet of him with Ray Harryhausen, uh, you know, with a little tabletop of stop-motion miniatures and stuff. So uh, suddenly Ted Moore is super cool, uh, not only because of James Bond, but because of the Sinbad movies that he shot.
1: I wonder if he shot Gold. I wonder who was the DP on that. Did you notice whether he was listed on there? Which was the Peter Hunt movie that Roger Moore starred in that was shot in South Africa? Oh, and I I know they used a lot of Bond. Sid Kane was a production designer. I just can't remember who the who the DP was, but it it just popped into my head.
2: I'm Um, not sure, but I do know that he did work with director Terrence Young before Doctor No on a movie, interestingly titled No Time to Die. (laughs) Wow. But it was retitled in the United States as Tank Force, but uh, the British title was No Time to Die. So now when the new James Bond movie comes out, I think we should just all start calling it Tank Force. That'll be great. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's hope there's a tank in
2: it. (laughs) Um, Oh, but what's interesting, too, is that he started as a camera operator and worked his way up. And one of the movies that Ted Moore worked on was The African Queen. He was the camera operator on that And the cinematographer on that movie was Jack Cardiff, who is one of my heroes. Um, He's known as really one of the pioneers of Technicolor. And he shot all those Powell Pressburger movies like The Red Shoes and, um, uh, oh, what's the one that I'm – Black Black Narcissus. Narcissus. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's amazing. So Ted Moore got a good uh, apprenticeship and, you know, worked with – Great people, and I imagine the stories he probably could tell, being the camera operator working under John Huston on the African Queen, are probably would be amazing. But anyway, so I'm a fan. I think the stuff he's done for for the James Bond series, it was all solid, looks really good. And again, moving into uh, the '70s, working with Ray Harryhausen, he also did Clash of the Titans, uh, which is not my favorite movie, but you know, uh, that's
1: three he did with Harryhausen. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's. that's he must have been a patient man. Just, I assume, because <laughs> that means he's lighting, right? He's helping do the lighting for the I dynamo- guess so, stuff. yeah.
2: It would be interesting to find out, you know, how he integrated his live-action work with the stop motion, if he actually supervised the lighting of that stuff or if Herrhausen knew about that. I, I don't know. I need to learn more about that.
1: Uh, did you notice at the beginning of this shot, when they're bringing Bond into the room, behind them, that rust-covered wall matches the overall color of the bauxite mine. And I just think it's really a very subtle way to link us to the stuff that was shot on location now that we're in the soundstage.
0: There's a lot of nice, subtle little hints at where, you know, geographical hints, geological hints through this whole group of minutes just to kind of orient us. Uh, maybe they're not that subtle, some of them. but uh, in order to orient us and let us know where we are, we never feel like we don't know where we are. There is no real establishing shot here, right? You know we don't no. we just get that
1: no, we just that's get that sweet.
0: one pull in from of the dragon. and it kind of gives you an idea because we have seen a long walkway that um, didn't didn't walk down when he got here when he right. arrived and so on. that but same but that's space. Enough. It's the same mm-hmm.
1: place where they drove through. Yep. Did you notice that one of those guards seems to finally we finally get a Jamaican accent? Yeah, he says yeah. he was contaminated, and I thought, "Wow, you know, <laughs> hey, this is like Jamaican. this guy's got a better—he's got a better Jamaican accent than the guys in Jamaica." <laughs> so, but
0: yeah, we have quite—we have a, quite a combination of people in this room, because um, we have the Jamaican gentleman that that welcomes them. You know, uh, we have a very British woman at the end of the decontamination segment the guy who's the foreman do you guys know who that is the guy who's the no foreman?
1: but he's asian right he's actually yeah, got he's an and, asian actor
0: well he's 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 personally from south uh, south america but he's of chinese descent and his name is anthony chin uh, uh the actor and he played mohan the bartender in Marion ravenwood's bar in raiders of the lost ark we've already been talking uh, about um so wow.
2: That Hold was on, a little discovery. I was like,
0: I wonder who this guy I is. I want to peek he's...
2: at this close-up now and see if I can tell if that's who well, that is.
0: You only get the one really good look at him in Raiders, right? He's going out the door and he turns back and she yells, Mohan, something, something in Nepalese. Mariano, yeah. yeah, and then he turns and looks at her and then, she cl- then he closes the door. So that's his – I think I, he's probably there in the drinking contest somewhere, yeah. but I'm not sure.
2: Interesting. But that's him. Wow, cool. Uh, I do want to say, you know th- – Ken Adams' set design is really great on this. And I, I, I want to give props to director Terrence Young and to Ted Moore because um, you can tell that they shot this scene, the decontamination scene, very economically. You know, there's this real sense when you look at the coverage of the scene that they, the camera placement was sort of meant for speed. You know, there's not a lot of reverses that, you know, you're not seeing areas of the set that would require a total turnaround or to moving in a set wall. It's very economical, but at the same time, it's also perfect. Like, you know, there's, what else do you need to see that original establishing tracking shot pullback that we just talked about? And then every sort of subsequent insert and just kind (laughs) of the conveyor belt move down the line as, uh, honey and bond are being showered off. Um, it's kind of all you need to know. And, um, I just think it looks great. It's, I do, it's just funny, just on a, nothing to do with cinematography, but it's interesting how um, a decontamination scene can also be this kind of titillating moment, you know, not not only with Ursula Anders, but with Sean Connery, you know, you get this, this great kind of showering, (laughs) lathering kind of going on. (laughs) So. And then we get to
1: watch him take his clothes off. Uh, so we don't see her take her clothes off. So that's very shrewd, you know. Right. They show us what we can watch because by the time he gets back over to the conveyor, she's already on and moving along. And then we've got that kind of perspex glass that uh, Ken Adam was talking about, just not letting us see anything except their silhouettes. But it's definitely there for for titillation yeah, purposes.
0: Yeah, you're, you're definitely. So there's the. What does the red sign say? Oh, I can't remember. There's a red sign in front of them as they're going across. or red lit up. Oh, says, it just
2: says active.
0: And then to the right it's blinking. The, to the right there's an equally sized area that seems to be glass. And i I guarantee you ninety-nine percent of people are look trying to look there. That's where that's they're so I can't remember what they, the sign said. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they think they think despite the fact you can't see anything through there, I guarantee you still think you maybe can. <laughs> or at least, especially if you're a fourteen year old boy watching well, this. Well that's movie, gonna you
1: know? get really put to the test in just a few seconds yeah, well, when we get to the yeah. end and we'll get there. Um All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do want to talk about that shower. <laughs> the shower, okay? Probably a very novel concept for the time, right? This idea that they're oh they're contaminated with radiation. I mean, I'm trying to think: is there any other example of a radiation scrub down shower in a movie before this? Maybe
2: not before this. The, you know, after the, this, you've got the Andromeda Strain. That right. whole you know, but uh, and then even Silkwood. Silkwood. Remember
1: all those crazy. Scenes where they're oh. trying to decontaminate them and sh- scrubbing them really hard. It's yeah. and naked. It's not like this where they give them a quick scrub down with their clothes on first, right? <laughs> well,
0: they only scrub, I mean, the time that, you know, we talked about the expedient editing. It must have been the, the issue here because they scrub their backs and then they're
1: done. It's like they just well, go it, and up it's and really down on the hilarious. back and they're like, I don't know. They they, they spray them from the front, right? Uh-huh. And it's really great how, like, you could tell, like, now don't shoot. Connery in the face with that thing, so it hits right <laughs> yeah. across his chest, and then he turns around, and then they come and they kind of try to scrub the whole body. But it's really interesting. And I thought, well, yeah, who would want to? I don't want to make him mad. and right. put him in the face Well, and you, the don't, you don't. You
0: don't want to have in the future. You don't want to have any unfortunate like gifts made of that. You know, the, <laughs> mm-hmm. Sean. I mean, they could be really t- overly suggestive. But um, the the yeah, it's the, the strangest scene. It's not. But like I was saying, it was a novel concept for the time. I would think, even though it looks silly to us now because we've had the ultra-realistic version of it in Silkwood
1: and so on. Yeah, the Total Recall version of it, too, where they're they're on the conveyor and you're— Oh, sure. It's like an X-ray machine. (laughs) I think about that as well. Yeah. Uh, But we do, when we get to the end, it's pretty clear that Ursula Andress has a a nude body stocking on, if you look closely. I don't think Uh, it's even nude,
0: is it? It's like dark brown.
1: Well, believe me, okay. I was looking. I it's was skin looking colored. Plus. Maybe she's got a no, nice tan. No, well, I
0: I think there's a difference though, because uh, yeah. the reason I point out the difference is because if you're the um, person deciding what she's wearing, do you try to make her look naked? Then you get in I trouble with the sensors. I think you centers. do. Like
1: I, I I thought it was on um, when I saw it. I, I thought it was flesh colored and it matched her her body I, color. But you you think it's a little dark? I thought brown, it was darker so. brown and maybe it's just
0: the shadow. But to me, I think you're you're playing with fire. By trying to make her look authentically naked, because this sensor you, we know how these sensors are. Well, what was they the color? They don't necessarily see, care if she's naked you'll have or to, not.
2: You'll have to forgive me for not watching recently the scenes that happened before these minutes. But what was the color of her swimsuit? You know, in white. the jungle season. Like oh, white.
0: Yeah. So white, this has nothing to do swimsuit. with anything she's really wearing.
2: No, okay. It's faking.
1: It's supposed to disguise the fact. It's supposed to make her look naked.
2: See, I wasn't sure. You know, obviously, I I did kind of pause that and see like what's going on there. But I just thought that maybe it was her swimsuit. But you're probably right. I think
1: think you see it better on the 4K transfer than when you see the movie, Mm -hmm. probably the way it really looked in the theaters. It was probably a lot more convincing, I would think.
0: Well, yeah, and I was watching on my computer, on our files, whatever that is. I don't know what. So maybe you're right, Mitch. Maybe if I watched it in 4K, it would be more... Flesh colored. I don't know. It just didn't look like it to me, and I thought, well, that's probably a good idea because if you're watching on film in the theater, it goes by in a flash. But uh, but the censors watch it and, say, and and they might be convinced she's naked, and the, the, you could say, oh no, she's not. Well, if I was convinced, then that's that's the way the censors <laughs> were back then, you know. it um, yeah, have been. Be.
1: I don't know. So could be. Did, uh, did you notice the color of the bathrobes? Are they, they blue? totally match the color of his trousers and his in his uh, wear shirt before it's a theme oh, yeah. it's a theme it's for that, Bond. the color it's that color yeah Yeah.
2: uh i did want to bring up there's a a close up for lack of a better word of who you of mohan from raiders of the lost ark mm-hmm. who i guess you know he's sort of the foreman of this room and it's a On my minutes, it's at like two forty nine. But I want to I bring it up because there's this concept when you're when you're directing films, very often you have to cheat things in shots. You have to scoot things around to make them look good in the frame. So, for instance, if you shoot a wide master shot, when you move into a certain angle, you may have to, you know, lift a desk up or scoot something over compared to where it was in real life in the in the original wide shot, just to make it look right in the new angle. And there's this shot where it's, if you cut between the wide shot and this one, it's really clear that they've moved a lot of stuff around. So the shot I'm looking at, he's sitting at the desk with the microphone and the controls, you know, his dials are on the left and in the background behind him are a couple of the uh, the guys in the red suits right by the copper door. But they've moved down much farther to the to the copper door than they were just in the shot before. And you can also tell they've adjusted the desk so that it's not quite parallel to the walls. But the shot looks really cool because there's these leading lines yeah. right to the door. But yeah, but the, I'm like, oh, that's a cool shot. And then I'm like, that desk is not where it was in the other shot. And those two guys have moved down farther. So anyway, that happens all the time. Uh, to make the shots look good. And, and if you've probably watched that in movies to see how many times they cheat things, it would drive you insane because it's done all the time. Well,
1: shall we move into the corridor from here through one of those copper vault-like doors? Uh, we, we move into this rock-walled space, and Peter Hunt had made the observation that by using this kind of design, you create the sense of them being underground and it's funny because we never seen an elevator so unless there was an elevator that the dragon came down uh there is there is there is nothing to really suggest that they're going that they've moved underground except for the production design and so we come into this inter interim corridor with the cave walls and again these you know copper bank vault kinds of doors and it's starting to sell this moment. There's no dialogue in this scene. They're just fum- they're just putting their slippers on, uh, but there's another visual element to this that Sid Kane actually uses in Honor Majesty's Secret Service in the underground ice cave, and that is this. Is it pink? What color is this? We call this
2: a pink light. Yeah, or is pink it a- or magenta or magenta, something.
1: right? A magenta light. Uh any thoughts about it? <laughs> other than the fact that it looks like Star Trek. Uh any other thoughts? Yeah, that was
2: my that was my main thought that I mentioned to you the other night was that uh I instantly thought of that episode of Star Trek called What Are Little Girls Made Of, you know with Ted Cassidy and and you know the androids. And uh and I think it's because they use the exact same colored gels on the cave set in Star Trek. So I don't know if that was a nineteen sixties thing, you know, like if you're gonna be in a a cave? You have to light it this color or not? But
1: um, it was a hip color. Mario Bava used that color yeah, a lot. That's
2: true. That's true.
0: I don't know if I could even come up with a practical reason. I mean, to say, is it suggesting some sort of nearby lava? Or like I don't overhead, know why. Are there
1: overhead lights? Maybe that's that are that are tinted like this. That it's that we're supposed to assume is casting that glow. Or are we just not supposed to think well, what, about it? Are we just in fantasy I, land?
0: No. I think we're just in fantasy land. Yeah. That's what I mean. I just don't think there's any reason to. Yeah, to I think, think underground would men. equal magenta, you know, I unless mean,
2: just looking at the scene, I can tell that the rocks are basically being top lit. You know, the the magenta light is coming from above and there's a, a key light hitting our actors in the face so that you see their shadows on that rock wall and those shadows are magenta too. And, uh, you know, what I really like is just that nice reflection of them and that copper s- circular door. It's, you know, it, it's it does yeah, the
1: job. Yeah. And, and the fact that they don't say, uh, hand me your slipper, here are your slippers, honey, or, you know, whatever, like it's <laughs> played, it's silent and it's kind of great because it creates a tension. Uh, they have things to do. He takes the slippers and he puts them on and everything. and But it's just really a wonderful, silent kind of moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it works. Uh, there's just, and I, I think just on a storytelling and just a dreamlike level, it works too to go through this door And to have this one moment of what's clearly just a geological formation with this technological door placed on it, it wouldn't have worked as well if they had gone right from the decontamination room into the, you know, slick room that we're going to see next. There's something dreamlike about this sort of little vestibule that they are before we move into this other thing. I, I think it's cool. It's
1: also kind of maybe this is a it's also stands in for an elevator.
2: Yeah. It seems to
1: be moving them into this different space, you know? So I don't know. It's really, it's very clever. And you don't ask any, you don't question it when it's happening. Yeah. Because it's so interesting and you've not seen anything like this before. Well, and don't they use this
2: later? Isn't it sort of planting a seed for later when they, uh, when they escape that there's these uh, tunnels or corridors that they use? I've forgotten, but I think it's also setting up. I think
1: we go back through a lot of these spaces on the way
2: out. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way it's just economic, you know, they're just planting these seeds to let you know, Hey, these places exist so that when they show up later, you know where you are. (laughs) And then this bank vault door opens. And I sort of wonder
1: if that's not, you know, we're now in another set. So we've moved that bank vault door to another set to repurpose it. You know, that's smart, economical. And then we move into this hotel lobby.
0: So what uh, notable about this scene? Um, and it's very familiar about this scene, is this concept of they're in danger. They've gone through this uh, very clinical routine. They've been taken prisoner. They've gone through this clinical routine where guys in suits are cleaning them and they're talking about the dangers of radiation. They move them through a cold corridor and then open up to very welcoming people, people that don't seem to be in the same world as the other people in this place, right? So these sisters or whatever, the nurses, I don't know what you want to call them, they're... Do they – you get the idea they maybe don't even understand what happens here. They probably do, but the idea is that it's disorienting. It's kind of like this uh, little bit of stepping into Oz kind of feeling that I love. I love this this heightens the fantasy is what I'm getting at, that, wow, what what you expect to have happen next is not what's going to happen next. We're walking right into this, like, is this really part of this cold – everything we've seen so far going all the way back to Dent in the – and the spider room has been cold and sparse and scientific, or, you know, and now suddenly we're in this warm, soft place. And I love the disorienting uh, element of that.
1: And Bond is in the book at one point expresses this disgust. He feels this incredible disgust because Sister Rose and Sister Lily and all of really what are the house slaves seem to mm-hmm. be completely disconnected with the exterior guards you know which are like the field slaves and so there's this whole kind of weird plantation thing that Fleming is sort of of suggesting without overtly stating but is but he's completely disgusted by it um I I also think it's interesting that they offer bond cigarettes and in the in the book they say that there were three cigarettes they were there were American cigarettes there were players and there were Turkish cigarettes so he he product drops one brand Mm. of cigarette which is the one that fleming smoked in this movie they say you have your choice of english american or turkish and um, do we have any guesses about which one james bond would probably (sighs) take
0: well i guess i mean my first guess would be english i i suppose um i have never i can't say i've ever smoked a turkish cigarette When I smoked, I smoked American cigarettes about 75% of the time and Dunhills about 25% of the time. Uh, So British cigarettes. And the only reason I didn't smoke Dunhills all the time was because they were expensive. So Bond
1: um, usually smokes uh, 60 cigarettes a day, which is a special Balkan and Turkish mixture with three gold bands. These cigarettes are specially made for him by Morelands. And he carries them, of course, in that wide, thin Gunmetal mm-hmm. cigarette case uh, that holds fifty, so he's got to reload it at least once a day. But um, but uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna guess he took the Turkish cigarette. And of course, according to Fleming, according to the book, Doctor No, that is in fact what he what he takes. It's the closest to his own brand. Nice. Okay. He, he skips the players and he goes for the Turkish. Okay.
2: Yeah, I w- I want to echo what John said um, just before about how this scene really plays against your expectations of what's going to happen. You know, you've you've just Uh, had somebody be brutally murdered and you've had this uh, attack and now they've been captured and then they're decontaminated. And you've seen, uh, you know, what's happened to somebody who displeased Dr. No earlier in the movie. And now you're brought in through these two big giant copper vault doors. And what you get is what seems like the Hilton, <laughs> you know, like and they've got these nice slippers and, and they've got the robes, you know, this whole place feels like a luxury hotel. And, um, I love it. And, and just in terms of the set design architecturally, there's this kind of, I guess I'm not very well schooled in architecture, but it has a definite sort of Frank Lloyd Wright, mid-century modern look where you've got stone and you've got wood and you've got metal, and then you've got a, a plant there and trees and um, so this combination of nature with the um, verticals and horizontals of, of you know more modern architecture, uh, and that that cool lamp on the right, I want that lamp. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, I love the look of it. What and but again, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but the hallway that goes into the distance. It's pretty clear that uh, there's either a force perspective thing going on right there, or it's just a it's just a painting. It's kind of like the engine room in Star Trek. You know, there's just there's this moment where you can tell, like, oh, that hallway that line doesn't quite line up. You know, the cam the de- the camera didn't dolly exactly where it was supposed to, and now that little right. line is a little off. But
1: um, I, I did notice that too. Yeah, uh, and it because but it's interesting because when they turn it around and pull us back down that hallway the hallway's long enough that it it doesn't spoil the illusion that that hallway goes 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 way back i mean i can i can buy it you know even though you're right there's yeah. something not quite right about the perspective that that we see it from you know and the, and, and this is again straight out of fleming that he said it was the sort of reception room the largest american corporations have on the president's floor in their new york skyscrapers it was a pleasant proportions with about twenty feet square, the floor was close carpeted in the thickest wine red Wilton, and the walls and ceilings were painted a soft dove gray. So it's like the idea of this Hilton modern space uh, is is also in the book. So you know, kudos to Fleming for for lighting the way to this really wonderfully incongruous environment. Yeah. So
0: I wanted to I wanted to say something about the the scene we have the coffee scene we have before the. Before we get to how it concludes um right so it, we've it,
2: entered we've come in we've been brought into the room now oh wait well can i mention one more thing before we get down to the to the room yeah okay so we uh we, we get this first shot where they're brought in and the two sisters are there and then we cut to a sort of i guess you would call it a reverse which is going to end up become this tracking shot that leads us to the room but right on that cut and they're both kind of like medium full shots. Um, I just, I wanted to bring this up. James Bond and Honey's position in the frame on both shots is like to the millimeter exact. So that when you do cut to that other shot, um, they're in the exact same spots of the in the frame. And I guess what makes me want to bring this up is that, you know, this was shot way before any kind of video assist existed. And so uh, I, I just have to applaud the the rigor that either Ted Moore or whoever is responsible for this in terms of the placement in the frame the the eye lines match like perfectly. And so all I can figure is that maybe, you know, maybe they had Polaroids or something to take photographs of the setups, either that, or they just got lucky, but there's just this sense of precision that I, as a camera operator, I'm like intimidated by. Um, and I don't know if this is going to be interesting to anybody else other than, than me, but there's just to think about like, you know, the, the, um, the concentration and the pre-planning in terms of blocking and move and placing the camera and adjusting the height just so, so that the eyelines match. I mean, that's, That's a lot of work, especially with no video assist where you don't have anything to look at. So um, I haven't looked back at the rest of the movie to see if there's this kind of precision on the rest. But maybe that's a lost art. Maybe that was something that was done back in the day before video assist that, you know, that I just uh, don't know about. But anyway, just struck my eye. It is funny because the movie doesn't leap
1: out at you as being this, you know, it's not like a Hitchcock film where you're where you're really conscious of the. Director, You know, and yet there is something that's that is precise about it. It's more than workmanlike. There's something that's really clearly artistic in the way that that this quadfecta of Peter Hunt, Terrence Young, Ken Adam and Ted Moore work together to to make this film so impressive. I can't wait to go back and look at that cut. I did not notice it, but I'm, I'm really excited to look at it.
0: So we get them down to the to the room there. We got a cart with coffee on it and Bond decides to have a cup of coffee. They discuss breakfast
1: and so on. They, what what do they discuss, John? Breakfast.
2: <laughs> or breakfast.
1: I believe oh, they discuss I see. breakfast. breakfast. <laughs> I got you, got you. <laughs> and I thought what is that is so weird because I've I heard British people read this on audiobooks and I've never heard anybody say breakfast. I know that the word is to you are breaking your fast. I know where that it comes from. He's uh, the
0: one that's right.
1: Right. He's he right in that sense, but is this like a I just kept thinking of sabotage. Yeah, you're thinking of Shatner. I am started thinking of Shatner. Is this like a Conneryism where he's like, I'm gonna make this line really interesting because I'm not gonna say breakfast <laughs> break- I'm going break say breakfast. I
0: I bet you could find a Scott or two that says it that way. I bet you that's not that's not just Connery, but it sounds it sounds particularly Scottish to me. Okay. But
1: All right. I just funny. wanted to, I just well, wanted us to, to To make sure that point was made. Now, go right ahead, John.
0: Well, what I want to talk about is they get this coffee, they sit down with their cups of coffee, not to speak to what the plot point is here, but to speak more to characterization and building relationships between characters in in movies, right? So we've been – I've been mostly and maybe other people have been critical (laughs) of a few of the scenes between Connery and Andrus earlier in the film. Particularly, we talked uh, with Kevin Wilmot about – their walk and talk on the beach and whether it was necessary and whether it maybe undercut the urgency of the, what was going on and maybe let's get to it. Uh, Instead of having this little chat where we talk about, well, they're putting in a little work to try to build the characters. And then we get the scene um, where they're washing off in the, um, in the pool. And we get the scene where, uh, that I do like where she tells the story about uh, the spider, getting the spider to kill the man for her, as we (laughs) kind of concluded was the takeaway from that. Um, But I want to say that them sitting down on this couch in robes, drinking coffee, worried looks on their faces, particularly her. And even the little bits of, you know, a back and forth between them or just walking along through the corridor. Her asking, what are they doing when they tell her to take off her clothes? All this does so much more for me to feel a bond between them than any of those conversations did. There's something visually seeing them sitting on that couch Together, strike strikes me as wow. They're really in this together, and and I, I I don't know. It's hard to explain where what what movies do so well is. You can sit two people on a couch and have them silently drink coffee, and you can find out more about what they mean to each other than you can in twenty pages of dialogue on a, in a novel. You know where I feel like what they were doing before was novel writing. Where here we're do we, We're seeing filmic a filmic bond being created by them just sharing a situation together.
1: Well, you know, they're in the honeymoon suite in a way. I I feel like that's one of the things that is at play here. And in the book, it's really drawn out. It it becomes a conversation about who takes a bath first and who's going to eat. And will you help me take a bath and can we sleep together and can we make out and no, we can't because, you know, Bond's trying to stay on the job and they take a long time to move into this domestic situation she even wants to play, pretend like they're married. Now what's great about the movie is just like you said John they don't have to say any of that and yet we're watching them kind of play house together and we're watching them have this honeymoon moment after everything that they've been through they've they're cleaned up and they're in their robes and it's and they're having, you know, they're having breakfast together which sort of implies that in another in another time in another place they would have uh, slept together and then had breakfast in the morning so right. it's it's great it, it again we're back to this economy and how much is cut out of the novel that is pretty languid uh, that manages to both move the story forward and deepen these right. characters it's it's brilliant cuz well, yeah it doesn't
0: it doesn't do anything to undercut the urgency of this situation you know arc- going all the way back to the to the beach I don't feel like I'm never asking like why are they doing this right now? I their 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 performances and everything. I they're in trouble. They're in danger. You could still feel that, and at the same time, we're getting this other thing. That's the efficiency. Like I, I think I'm just kind of articulating what you just said, but putting it a little bit. In one yeah, that's the beauty of it, and um, why some of those other things didn't work as well for me. This works really well.
2: Yeah, and especially like you said, there's this other thing going on, which is the tension of. Wh- you know when is the shoe going to drop? You know when when is Doctor No going to show up? Because obviously we're being treated so well, and this place is like a luxury hotel. What is going on? And the movie has done a good enough job of telling its story that we can feel confident as viewers that this is not leading down some. This is not an extraneous scene. It's this is an, an intentional build up to something that's going to happen. Which of course it does. Um, so you get to enjoy the, the tension of the delay of the dan- the actual danger, and. Uh, you know, again, this sort of connection between them at the same time. I will say, like, when they come into the room, the camera dollies back, to, or actually it pushes in. It's kind of a very contemporary sort of push in instead of a pull back. And the, the woman says, here's the bathroom. And then the camera pans left as she walks and they pan across a bed. <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, okay, there's there's one bed. Interesting. And then, of course, mm-hmm. she opens up the blinds and there's a second, whole second suite with a full closet. So it's again, it's intentionally sort of like you said, everything that sort of was discussed in the novel is just sort of alluded to and allowed for our imagination to kind of to, to work with this stuff, even though nothing is being said. And then the woman leaves and, you know, they kind of look around bond assumes that the the place is wired for sound. And he goes over and grabs his breakfast <laughs> and his coffee. And to, to lead up to what you said, John, about this connection between them, the first cut right after that is a cut to Honey. There's this shot of her sipping her coffee, and she's kind of looking around, assessing her situation. And then she moves around, and the camera pulls back into a two-shot. And so I think just on a filmmaking level, one of the things that makes you feel this connection between them is that we get this little single moment of her. We're in her head for just a second yeah. to be this sort of the... the you know, the, the normal person, the non-secret agent that's taking in this crazy situation. And then she sits down next to him. And I think that just emotionally helps us sort of like, oh, this is an actual moment between these yes. two people. And he touches her hand after she, she sits down next to him.
1: It's a really gentle gesture where he just does this comforting moment and just touches her hand. And it's it's really soft. It's very, very surprising.
2: Yeah, it's the moment that he sees that something, you know, she says, I don't feel so good or whatever her line is. Right. And uh, clearly, being James Bond, his constitution is stronger, you know, and so he gets another five seconds before he feels it.
0: (laughs) She metabolizes faster than him, I'm sure. Sure. and, and I want to point out too that this is we're getting a Mickey here. We get the old Mickey, yep. and this is, this is where you can see the direct line between Chan, Raymond Chandler and Ian Fleming. It's like this is so Chandler esque that they got slipped them. Of course, Chandler typically <laughs> does it before they get captured, before Marlowe gets captured. That's usually how he's gotten uh right. disposed That's how of they get our, him, right? Yeah, that's how they get him. But uh,
2: a black hole it, opened up. There was <laughs> you know, no bottom. A,
0: <laughs> the be, The best one. The best one I think being uh, the room went black and. When I woke up, I went to wipe something off my face, and it was the floor. I think it was, I think I got that one exactly. It's always been one of my favorite Chandler lines. Boy, I love Chandler. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: always the best.
2: I will say, as a coffee uh, aficionado, it, it it's just infuriating to know that the coffee was poisoned. You know, that he didn't get to enjoy, you know, just... Good hotel yeah. coffee and
1: damn coffee. Uh, coffee. <laughs> it's a good move to try to stabilize yourself on a wheeled cart. Right. <laughs> Never the best idea. <laughs> and we do we even get a fade out, which is all, very Chandler-esque, isn't it? That, That's the, true. You know, no, totally. The, the world goes dark for the both of them in that moment. And um, and then we go to this this next moment, which is, again, straight out of the book uh so we've got a point of view omniscient point of view we're not in anybody's heads we are you know suspensefully watching these proceedings and knowing more than james bond knows who's knocked out and uh todd you want to talk a little bit about that sh- about this moment or this shot
2: yeah you know it's um it's it's cool in the sense that it's it has an air of mystery and that we're not really yet uh showing the face of Dr. No. So what we get is a sinister shadow and some shoes, you know, so the kids, it, you get two cliches in one, although I think these are done very well, but you get the sinister shadow and you get the uh, below the waist following the shoes shot and the camera pans over, uh, over the bed as he walks up and moves over to James Bond. And unfortunately for me, uh, my minutes end before we get the you know the the big you don't get to see moment. what he's gonna
1: do no nope, they're gonna have to wait You've yeah just yeah approach approach
2: but um but you know I I like that idea of the fade to black and then when we fade up we're, we're not in a subjective you know we're not in James Bond's uh, unconscious you know we're not getting the Chandler version where we would have some sort of crazy dream sequence but what we are getting is this kind of, even though it's objective, because we're seeing something that Bond doesn't, it's still this sort of fantasy land with the you know with the shadow and the color and the, the shoes. So we get this kind of poetic imagery, um, this little liminal moment before I guess the story will start up again in the next episode. It was a
1: cliche then, just to be clear. It's a cl- cliche now, but it still works because we want to see his face. And the storyteller is cleverly concealing that from us. And so, cliche or not, you can't help but be hooked by it.
2: Yeah. Well, Mitch, how many movies have you and I made where we've backlit somebody to show a shadow and we film the shadow? I mean, you know, like, that's done a lot. That's movie making, yeah. right? <laughs> it goes back
1: to F.W. Murnau. It goes further back. It goes back to the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Sure. It goes back to the to the theater of 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 uh, Reinhardt. You know, it's light and shadow. So that's what we, what we like to play with.
2: Um, Something to bring up. I I was going to bring it up earlier, but now that we're at the end, this is where we have to bring it up. I, I clocked it from basically minute three to minute seven of the, of this seven minute block. There are only seven shots. So from the shot where they go into the cave vestibule, to this last shot, there are seven shots, and so that works out to an average of 32 seconds per shot, which for an action spy movie, is that's just unheard of. you know. And of course, a James Bond movie today, that would be literally impossible, <laughs> or that would be considered some sort of bravado stylistic use of slow cinema or something like that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're
1: right. Oh yeah, everybody'll uh,
0: talk about that oneer in at the beginning of Specter, you know, like it's the big yeah. sure it's a big oneer, but yeah, if there is, you're right. That's a talked about things like what a daring choice by uh, Mark Forster or whatever. Yeah. You're right, you're but right. what's
1: so fascinating too is that these movies are going to ultimately be recognized for the fast cutting uh, w- with because the f- the seconds per shot rate increases in Goldfinger in a way that uh is was new at the time so goldfinger is cut even more quickly and of course when we get to from russia with love the cutting in the fight scene is is extraordinary but i do think it's interesting how on one hand it's doing that and on the other hand as todd points out it's being extraordinarily economical and using the mise en scene and the and the placement
2: yeah of, i mean we can we can count them because they're so short so they they are in the vestibule they put on their slippers the door opens Cut to next shot, the reveal of this new space with the two sisters. And then the next shot is pulling down the hall to get them to their room. Then we cut. Now they're in the room. The room is revealed. The other woman leaves. Then we cut to Honey looking around and then she sits down. That whole scene where they're talking with the coffee, that's one shot from the moment that she sits down, you know, it starts on her and ends on James Bond passing out and the fade to black. And then the final shot is this shot of Dr. No entering and moving up to the bed. So like in terms of story, you know, there's no coverage, there's no over the shoulders, no cross angles, no wasted footage at all. And um, I would have to bet that's probably partly due to budget, you know, in terms of schedule and just, you know, film is expensive. But at the end of the day, what you end up with is, is a very economical sequence here where you get get moved through these spaces. And I mean, what, what do you need close ups for really? You know, like that's at this point in the story, it wouldn't really help anything because it's all about this new crazy space that they're in. So we get to actually hang back and watch it. And of course in 4k, uh, you can actually see the expressions on their faces. So there's no need to punch in for these extraneous close ups anyway.
1: Well, John, do you have any
2: final thoughts
1: on this? moment of dr no coming into the room
0: i don't not really Um ready to talk about it next next week because we get the real we get the real deal we get the real info next week so uh, ready to talk about it then
1: todd thanks so much for joining us this has been as always enlightening and interesting and fun and i hope you'll come back and join us for from russia with love when we do that and Hopefully another Patreon show. we got to find another movie yeah. to all get together and talk about.
2: I'll definitely be back. This was great. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, you can find us on
0: Twitter at 007x7podcast or um, at our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Alien Minute. Don't forget about Alien Minute. If you're new listeners that have found us through 007x7, uh, don't forget we did Alien and Aliens one minute at a time. So go back and listen to those that ungodly amount of episodes about those two movies. <laughs> Uh, I think you'd enjoy them. So, all right. And well, Todd that's...
1: talks about uh, Adrian oh. Biddle and Derek Van Lent and focus pulling and all sorts of amazing God, yeah, stuff. Yes, Todd
0: did. Todd did multiple yeah. episodes of both Talked shows. About so,
2: anamorphic and uh, yeah. soft '70s lighting and the, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So, come on over and listen to that stuff. But uh, as for this show, we'll be back next week and we'll see you then. Thanks.
1: Bye,
2: bye, everybody.